Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 104. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and have been a full-time outdoor instructor and guide since founding the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in 1999. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident in the natural world through our bushcraft and guide training semester programs and multi-week canoe and snowshoe expeditions. You can check out the show notes to all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. If you're interested in learning more about our college-accredited and GI Bill-approved programs, visit the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School on the web at jackmtn.com. And check out our online network and digital learning academy at bushcraftschool.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith. We are just past halfway day on our spring 2021 wilderness guide training semester. We're headed out uh, today for our first uh, multi-day river trip. Um, next week headed out on the Allagash Wilderness Waterway and we'll do a big aroostic trip in a couple of weeks. So things at the field school are busy. The fiddleheads are finally coming up and the flies are out as well. And while that can be a pain, uh, it also means that the fishing is as good as it gets all year around here. So things are busy. Things are buzzing, not just the flies. Um, we're enjoying a wonderful course. We're having a really good time with the, the people on the course. Um, but we still have some room in some of our summer programs. So if you're interested in learning how to get by in the woods with less stuff, um, consider coming out for our three-week bushcraft and canoe expedition program this summer. Uh, essentially, it's a week at the field school doing all sorts of skills, and then we take off for two weeks on the Allagash. This week on the podcast, we're getting back to our audio book, uh, where I'm reading selections from uh, the, my book, On the Trail, um, collected snowshoe and canoe trip journals. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. <clears throat> On the Trail, Chapter 5, Allagash Stream and Allagash Lake. The first week of June 2005, I went on a solo canoe and fishing trip to Allagash Lake and Allagash Stream. I put in on the stream above the lake, where it's narrow and winding. There wasn't a lot of water, so I pulled the entire way to the dead water above the lake. As I was coming around a corner, I looked down and saw a metal grill basket in about five feet of water. I retrieved it with the pole, and will be including it in my cook kit. Ray Rizzi has shown me the giant frying pan he found on the bottom of the Musquecook Deadwater on the Allagash. So now, I've got my own piece of cookware, found in the bush. Before the stream enters Allagash Lake, it becomes a deadwater. And there I got out a fly rod and tied on a streamer. I took a few casts, then trolled the streamer behind me as I paddled into the lake. It didn't take long before I felt a hit, so I set the hook and retrieved an 11-inch brook trout. A real beauty. I pushed onto the ice cave's campsite for a break, then continued paddling to the outlet, where I camped for the night. After unloading the boat, I waded out into the water and fished for an hour, catching a few brookies on various flies. When I woke up the next morning, I loaded the canoe and pushed off down Allagash Stream. 
The water was low and the stream was bony, but fast. I ran the section down to Round Pond quickly, then paddled across the pond and unloaded my gear at the first campsite at Little Allagash Falls. After carrying the boat around the falls, I was again headed downstream. When I came to the large ledge, I took the side route that was blocked by a tree across the stream. As my bow butted up against it, I walked up to the bow and my weight was enough to get the boat under the log. Then I walked to the stern of the boat as it barely slipped under the log, before stepping over the log and floating downstream. I've used this technique numerous times, and I wondered if there was a name for it. After running under the bridge and entering the dead water, it wasn't long before I was into the vast waters of Chamberlain Lake. <clears throat> After floating around for a while, I turned the boat around and pulled back upstream. It was pretty simple to get back up to the bridge since the water wasn't too shallow. As I approached the bridge, I tied a lining bridle onto the bow of the canoe and stepped onto shore. There was a deep chute I didn't think I could get up with a pole but I figured it would be no problem tracking. I worked the canoe under the bridge and up the chute, then untied the lining bridle and resumed pulling upstream. As I approached the smaller ledge drop, I again tracked the canoe over it, and at the larger ledge, I lifted the boat over while standing on top of the ledge. Then as I came around the corner and once again saw Little Allagash Falls, I carried the canoe around the falls, and was just about to put in when I almost stepped on a snake who was sunning himself on the rock. He was as surprised to see me as I was to see him, and beat a hasty retreat to the safety of a rock crevice. I don't know what kind of snake it was, because it happened so fast, but it was still neat to see. There were loons fishing in the pond near the falls as I loaded my gear into the canoe. When I finished, I sat on the rocks and ate lunch, while watching and listening to them. When finished, I pushed off and headed across Little Round Pond and the upper section of the stream. The first mile or so of the upper stream passed quickly, but soon I was into the shallower sections of the stream and bottoming out on rocks that slowed my progress from that of a brisk walk to that of a crawl. The trick is in finding the water that's deep enough to float your boat and gear, but it became harder and harder to find. After unsuccessfully trying every possible way to pull up a section of riffles, I stepped out of the boat and tied on a lining bridle, then started walking upstream. <clears throat> the water was just over my ankle most of the time, but with rocks scattered about making the passage of the boat difficult. I searched my memory as my eyes scanned the water, trying to remember how I had gotten down this section and looking for water deep enough to pull. <clears throat> I ascended the rest of the stream this way, by pulling and wading, and it was a lot of work. At one point, I was stepping onto a rock that was just above the water, and I slipped, landing on it flat on my back. If I didn't have to immediately scramble to get a hold of the canoe, as it went downstream with the current, I would have laid there on that rock for a while. I was tired, and the impact had cracked my back much like a trip to the chiropractor. Eventually, I came to the top of the last riffle and entered the smooth water just below Allagash Lake. It had been six miles of upstream travel and had taken me seven hours. I was physically exhausted, but it felt good. As I entered the lake, I tied on a fly and floated around taking a few casts, then set out for the southern part of the lake before making camp and sleeping soundly. I woke in the morning to a mist-covered lake and trout jumping all around. They were feasting on some hatching insects. 
The scene was one out of a fly fisherman's dreams, so I packed up and got on the water quickly to take advantage of it. As the morning wore on, and I worked my way across the lake and up the stream towards the put-in, I decided to alter my course and take out at Johnson Pond instead of struggling with the low water in the upper stream. So I dragged my canoe through the tunnel under the alders and over several beaver dams until I emerged at Johnson Pond, then paddled across to the takeout. After unloading my gear, I started the four-mile walk to the truck. The sun was shining with a few cumulus clouds dotting the sky, and my long pants, long sleeves, hat, and headnet protected me from the relentless mosquitoes and the horseflies. I had seen about 30 moose, a bunch of osprey and bald eagles, wild brook trout, loons, a snake, and found exactly what I came for. On the Trail, Chapter 6 The Big Black River, Northwestern Maine The Big Black River rises in Quebec and crosses into the unorganized townships of the North Maine woods near the border town of St. Pamphile. It winds its way east and north and runs into the St. John River just downstream of the Big Black Rapids, nearly doubling the size of the St. John. Although it's on the Allagash-St. John canoe map that's so popular with canoeists and fishermen, it is seldom traveled. Many times I've come down the St. John and passed the point where it flows in from the west, wondering what's upstream and what kind of trip it is. This spring I found out. I met the party I was guiding at Pelletier's campground in St. Francis on May 9th, 2006. Proprietor Norman Latalien has provided me with outstanding service over the years, shuttling vehicles and dropping me off with clients, and has a beautiful campground on the bank of the St. John. It was a small group consisting of myself, fellow guide and friend Don Merchant, and Mark and Tom, two men who worked for a newspaper. We had a big dinner and got to know each other while watching the St. John flow by. In the morning, we were up early and had all of our gear and boats on the shuttle truck by 6.15. Tom Letalien, Norman's son, <clears throat> was our driver. We dropped my vehicle at the Dickey Trading Post and headed into the woods on the woods roads. As we drove in, we all got to know each other better, and the conversation flowed easily. About two hours into the trip, we were driving on the Maybeck Blanchette Road approaching Priestley Bridge, when we noticed some men and machinery working on it. Tom stopped the truck, and we got out for a look at the St. John as he went and talked with the men. They were Quebecois, and he had trouble understanding them. But they told him that the bridge was closed, and that we'd have to head south and cross the St. John on the Moody Bridge, about an hour away. We went back to the truck, and Tom called Norman, who told him that the Moody Bridge had been damaged by the ice and was impassable. Norman knew the foreman of the bridge crew from his days working in the woods, and spoke with him on the cell phone. It was decided that they would take a break and allow us to cross the bridge on the timbers they were laying. In ten minutes we were across the bridge and heading for the border at St. Pamphile. Were it not for Norman knowing the foreman, we would have had to go back to Dickey and take another road to get to the Big Black, which would have taken the rest of the day. Had I not already been a lifetime customer of Norman's, this would have been more than enough to make me one. Our route to the put-in took us within a quarter mile of the border crossing at St. Pamphile. One of the guys wanted to stop and talk with the customs officer about launching in Quebec and floating across the border. We were informed that it was illegal and a $5,000 fine. So we got back in the truck and headed south to a bridge that crossed the river a few miles south, staying on the U.S. side.
At the bridge, we unloaded gear, shook hands, and thanked Tom, and began loading one of the boats. Since Tom and Mark were interested in seeing the border, and the map showed it was only three or four river miles from the bridge, I got in the 18-foot, 6-inch boat with them and started pulling upstream. The water was high, and there were few eddies, so it was a lot of work to get the boat upstream. After poling for a while, the three of us paddled for a short bit, then I went back to poling. We alternated like this for a mile and a half, then pulled over to the riverbank and had a look upstream. We could see upriver about three quarters of a mile, and still didn't see the border, so we decided to head back downstream. We floated lazily with the current over the course of our laborious upstream travel. What took us an hour and a half to get upstream, we covered in 15 minutes of floating with the current. At the bridge, we loaded up both boats, and soon we were floating downstream, out of sight of the bridge. At this point, the Big Black is about 40 feet wide, similar in size to the St. John, as it exits Baker Lake, and made up of alternating quick water and Class 1 and 2 rapids. After about an hour, we stopped on the riverbank for lunch. We sat in the dead grass and ate our fill. By habit, I was investigating the muddy riverbanks for tracks, and found clear moose and deer prints. There was also a bunch of beaver sign. Before long, we were back in the boats heading downstream. As we rounded a bend in the river where Depot Stream entered on the right, we saw several cabins along the left bank of the river. Paddling closer, we saw two women planting flowers along the bank. They saw us approaching, and they remarked to one another that they didn't know if we were French-speaking Quebecois or English-speaking Americans. We greeted them in English, and they asked us what time it was. It wasn't long before a man strode out to the riverbank from behind a cabin and introduced himself as Rod Sirwa. The reason they needed to know the time was because one of the women needed to get across the border before it closed at 5 p.m., or she wouldn't be able to get to her house in Quebec until the border opened at 9 the following morning. We chatted briefly, and Rod invited us ashore to talk and have a look around his camp called Northern Hideaway. We tied up the boats and came ashore, then followed Rod as he gave us the tour of the place. We settled into a log cabin and chatted for a while. Rod shared his stories of raising coyote pups and showed us some of the artifacts he's collected on his travels through the North Woods. Before long, our hosts had to leave for the border, so we said goodbye and headed downstream. It was late in the day, so we started looking for a spot to camp. We found it in a small clearing that Don had happened to spot from the river. Once ashore and unloaded, we got some firewood and got a fire going. I built a tripod pot suspension system and put some water on to boil, then wove several grills out of sticks on which to cook our steaks. We rounded up the meal with sourdough biscuits, brown rice, fresh asparagus, and had brownies for dessert. With full bellies, we turned in one by one and slept soundly. In the morning, we had oats and sausage for breakfast, then loaded up the boats. We had been watching and listening to the birds all morning, and Mark, whose knowledge of birds was encyclopedic, identified two merlins and witnessed them copulating. We paddled downriver with clouds building throughout the day. After a lunch stop in a riverside meadow, we paddled up several bogans that led into the nine-mile deadwater. We pushed on until we found a nice camp alongside a large stream that came in from the left. Immediately after landing, we, ridged, we rigged a ridge pole and set up the tarp. Just as we were finishing it, it began to rain, and continued to rain for about an hour. 
We got dinner going and made a few improvements to the campsite before starting a fire and baking biscuits. We decided to spend another night at this campsite and spend the day exploring and improving the camp. As darkness fell, it was considerably cooler. In the morning, we had a hard frost. Some snow had fallen during the night, but there was no accumulation. We had sourdough pancakes and sausage for breakfast. Then we spent some time sharpening knives and axes and busying ourselves cleaning up the campsite. After lunch, three of us headed into the forest and followed the stream up for about a mile. It was clear and fast, and I, I made a note to return sometime and explore it with a fishing rod. When we returned to camp, Don had built a table to make our cooking and dishwashing easier. We had dinner and went to bed warm and contented. When we woke up, the wind was howling up the river corridor. We had breakfast and broke camp, then floated downstream several miles to the confluence with the St. John. The St. John is wide below the confluence, and we worked hard paddling against the strong winds, even though we had the current working in our favor. We stopped at the ferry crossing campsite, located on a bend in the river beyond which was a straight mile-long section with the wind rushing up to meet us. At the campsite were four firefighters from western Massachusetts. We made small talk about the river, and they commented on the beauty of our wooden boats. We stayed there for about 20 minutes before pushing on downriver. We paddled until about 3 p.m., then chose to camp for the night at the Ouellette Farm campsite. After setting up camp, our resident birder spotted two more merlins on the nest and got several photographs of them. I made dinner, and everyone pitched in to gather firewood. We had a hot dinner, then relaxed around the fire as the stars came out in a crystal clear sky. In the morning, we loaded up and headed downriver for the short trip to Dickey. The wind had died overnight, so we were pushed along quickly by the current. As we approached the Poplar Island campsite, there was a wall of debris ten feet deep, high up on the bank, a remnant of the ice dam that had been thirty feet deep on the river this past spring. It had ripped the campsite sign down, as well as the sign that read, Three Miles to Big Rapids. We poked around a bit before paddling the last section of river, river above the rapids. At the head of the rapids, we pulled off the river and unloaded some gear. Since Don has been nursing a shoulder injury, he wasn't going to run the rapid. Mark stayed with him, and Tom and I set off downstream in an empty boat. I pulled down the rapids slowly, hugging the left bank. When we rounded the corner, I stowed the pole and grabbed the paddle guiding us around the numerous rocks and making sure we hit all the standing waves head on. After the first drop, I grabbed the pole again, slowing us down and picking a route through the second drop. When we entered the second drop, I again stowed the pole for the paddle, and soon we were at the foot of the rapid. We had taken on a little bit of water, as the standing waves were higher than our gunnels, so we pulled off the river and drained the canoe. Then we paddled the remaining mile to the Dickey Bridge. I retrieved the van from the trading post, pick up Don, picked up Don and Mark, and then we all had a relaxing lunch before heading down the road to Pelletier's campground and Mark's car. Paddling a new river is something I didn't think much about as a young man. As time goes by, though, a new adventure and discovering a new piece of ground or section of river has become more exciting as the list of places I've been grows. Because of this trip, the Big Black is no longer a mystery to me. My curiosity and questions about the river have been replaced with fond memories of a great trip. Perfect weather, great companionship, comfortable water levels, nice campsites, no mishaps, all these things contributed 
to another enjoyable excursion in the great state of Maine. On the Trail, Chapter 8 Maine Winter Camping with No Sleeping Bag February 2002 I had been up late packing food and gear for our 10-day snowshoe trip in the mountains along the Maine and Quebec border. And after driving four hours to the trailhead, I was feeling tired and groggy despite two cups of coffee. The temperature had warmed throughout the morning, rising to near freezing and allowing the precipitation that fell to be neither snow nor rain, but ice. As we unloaded the gear onto the nine-foot-high snowbank shoulder of the road, I grabbed my bag and tossed it up to waiting hands on the top. It felt smaller and lighter than I thought it should, so I scrambled up to the top of the snowbank and looked inside of it. All of my personal gear was neatly packed, with the exception of my sleeping bag, which wasn't there. I had two problems to solve. First, I had to figure out how to stay warm at night with no sleeping bag. Thankfully, we were traveling with a canvas tent and wood stove, so the solution was obvious. Find and cut large quantities of good firewood. The second problem was how to turn this into a learning opportunity for the group, and not just a forgotten piece of gear. After parking the van at the border, I walked back to the trailhead, put on my snowshoes, and followed their tracks for a mile before seeing the toboggans. People were busy setting up camp, and I immediately started setting up our group tent. Working quickly, I had the tent and stove set up in record time. My motivation was strong, knowing that I needed to make a thick bow bed and gather good firewood before dark or risk freezing overnight. As the sleet fell, I moved as quickly as I could without breaking a sweat. When darkness fell, I had gathered enough boughs for a decent bed and a substantial amount of wood. Had it been 40 below, it wouldn't have been enough, but in the balmy temperatures we were enjoying, it would be sufficient. After dinner, I told the group about how trappers used to travel without sleeping bags or blankets because they didn't have room on their toboggans. It was a common practice for them to sleep in their clothes on a bow bed next to the wood stove. I also related how it was a test of manhood to see you could have, who would have to stoke the stove first, and that they'd often be stubbornly pretending to be asleep while the temperature inside the tent had neared the bitter temperature outside. As the candles burned down and people dropped off to sleep, I began to get ready. I put on all the clothes I had and laid some firewood between me and the wood stove to stop me from rolling into it in my sleep. I also stacked wood along the outside of the tent to stop any cold drafts. Before I blew out the candle, I looked at the other six people in the tent, all snuggled down into their sleeping bags. I loaded the stove, then blew out the candle. I woke up several times cold during the night and stoked the stove. Once, it had gone out completely, and I had to light it again from scratch. When the first light from the pre-dawn sky was visible, I had slept for about five hours, compared to everyone else's nine. But I had slept enough, and the following nine nights, I'd sleep better. When it came time to wake the group, I loaded up the stove, got it roaring, and cooked them from their sleeping bags. Shedding beliefs and ideas about what can't be done is worth doing even if it isn't always easy or comfortable. One result of my career as a guide has been the long trail of shed beliefs. My experience on this trip made me feel more at home in the forest and better able to deal with unplanned situations by forcing me to put knowledge into action. The role of the guide is supposed to be that of an expert who doesn't make mistakes. However well entrenched this belief is, it's false, 
Every guide that I know has made mistakes, but those worth their salt have dealt with the circumstances and still had a great trip. Maybe this, instead of not making mistakes, should be the mark of experience. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I took the chapters out of sequence there. That last one about winter camping with no sleeping bag um, was real short. And we have one more longer chapter for the next episode of the podcast, which um, discusses a trip, paddling trip through the Florida Everglades. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this. If you do, um, leave us a review or don't. Up to you. And we will hit you back again with another one soon. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.